Chapters twenty four and twenty five of the Interrupted Kiss by Richard Marsh. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter twenty four. If in want of a wife, take one. Rupert Earle said nothing to Miss Morris of his adventures of the previous night, nor did he volunteer any information as to whether his expenditure had exceeded a sovereign. He was still in his bedroom when she brought in his breakfast. So soon as he had finished his meal, he went out. Not long afterwards he put in an appearance at some flats near Sloane Square. Ascending to the fourth story by the lift, he knocked at a door and inquired of the neat maid if Mr. Harmar was in. She told him that he was, and ushered him into an apartment in which that gentleman was reading his morning papers as a sort of postscript to his morning meal. He looked up with a look of genuine pleasure as his visitor entered. "'Hello, Earl. This is unexpected. You are an early bird. Had breakfast?' "'Thanks. I've had all the breakfast I want. To tell you the truth, I hardly expected to see you, although I wanted to badly enough. How are things going?' "'They're not going. They've got into a beastly ditch, and there they're bidding fair to stick. Or if they can be said to be going, then they're going all wrong. Frankly, although, mind, I don't blame you, I'm conscious I've only myself to blame. Still, I wish I hadn't come in with you that night, that I'd left your proposal severely alone.' I made no proposal. I told you in confidence what I proposed to do. The proposal that you should follow suit came from you. That's true. I was led away by Palgrave's eagerness. That's tough. Palgrave was drunk. You were sober, as sober as I was. Like me, you were driven by necessity. Culver had us under his heel. We made a desperate effort to fend off the evil day when he would bring it down and squash us. A pretty wild-cat effort it was. We should have been nicely in the soup if, if he'd been alive in the morning. I quite realized that his demise was the best thing that could have happened to us. If it hadn't been for what you call his demise, he'd have found out what had happened, as he was bound to do, and we should have been worse off than ever. Personally, I was prepared to face the music. After I'd got what I did get, he'd have found me a harder nut to crack than you perhaps imagine. Oh, I believe that easily. He'd lent me one thousand one hundred pounds. If he'd given me a little time, I was willing to let him have his money back twice over, three times over, four times if he liked. But I was not willing that he should rob me of millions of all the fruits of my lifelong labors. I did nothing of which I am ashamed, of which I have cause to be ashamed, nothing which I would not do again if the position recurred. You may constitute any jury of honest men you like, and I'll tell them my story." Whatever the legal aspect of the case might be, they would acquit me morally, and each one of them, if he were a man, would admit that, in my position, he would have done as I did. I have nothing to repent, have done nothing which I wish undone. Mr. Harmar drew a long breath, which sounded very like a sigh. I'll be glad if I could speak with the same cock-sureness. If I may hazard a surmise, judging from your remarkably cock-a-doodly attitude, I should say that it looks uncommonly as if that engine of yours had turned up trumps with a vengeance. It has. I've received one hundred thousand pounds for an option which, if exercised within seven days, is to bring me, at the end of that time, a further half-million in hard cash. In which case, I am within the mark when I say that I, and my descendants, ought to receive at least a solid million a year." and quite probably very much more, practically for ever and ever. Then your Arabian night's dreams are coming true. Small wonder there's nothing of which you repent. If I were in a similar case. 
As it is, I feel as if I'd jockeyed Elsie Graham out of ten thousand pounds to serve as a sop in the pan for the army of my creditors. If there's anything I can do, I'll do it. Don't let any money troubles worry you. It's very nice of you to talk like that, considering how they have been worrying me. If that second will turns up, I shall want someone to do something, because my last state will be worse than my first. Is Mrs. Harmar with you? Not she. I'm alone. And so far as she is concerned, I rather fancy that she'd sooner I was alone. We used to be inseparable, but since that night, an impalpable wall seems to have sprung up between us. And we're inseparable no longer. I'm beginning to wonder if I've lost my wife. Does she guess? She not only guesses, she knows. But how much she knows I don't know, and I don't dare to ask. Oh, you may have come out at the top, and I'm sure I hope you have. It's a comfort to know that someone scored. But I've come out very much at the bottom, and it looks as if I were going to stop there. And how's the other person? There is another thing. What's wrong with Elsie Graham? Something is. How wrong? What do you mean? I'm wondering if she's in communication with Palgrave. That she certainly isn't. How do you know? The principal purpose of my coming is to talk to you about him. Harmar, there's going to be trouble in that quarter. Before very long, the police will have him. He says when they get him, he shall plead guilty. Good Lord! But, surely... I saw him last night, and in consequence I'm here this morning. I want to tell you as exactly as I can what took place. He told the story of his adventures of the previous night with sufficient particularity to make an unpleasant impression on his auditor, as was shown by the remark which Mr. Harmar made as soon as the tale was finished. In the face of what you've just been telling me, you say that there's nothing about that night which you regret. I did not say regret. The word I used was repent. I said that, given the same circumstances, I'd do all that I did over again. And so I would, only with this difference that I'd take precious good care to leave you and Palgrave out. But man alive, supposing he does plead guilty, where shall we be? In an uncomfortable position beyond a doubt. It's quite possible that we may find ourselves in the dock beside him. Oh, quite. Errol, you're a cheerful beggar. It strikes me that if you do find yourself in the dock beside him, you'll find that you've paid too dearly for your whistle, however well worth having it may be. And where do I come in? Without a whistle? Keep your head, man. If Palgrave had kept his, he wouldn't be in the mess he is. It's all very well for you to talk. You seem to think that you're on rollers. But what price me? Anyhow, I'll be ruined, discredited, socially, financially, always. You can't blink the fact that, look at it as you choose, what we did was robbery. I deny that, so far as I'm concerned. What I did was to take steps to prevent myself from being robbed. Tell that to the Marines. Take my advice and don't tell it to the police. They've a cruder point of view than you seem to have. It occurs to me that about the best thing we can do is to make a bolt of it. If we start at once we may have a better chance than poor Palgrave seems likely to have. I certainly won't bolt, and if I can help it you won't either. If you do it will be equivalent to running your neck into the noose, as Palgrave's done. I'll tell you what I propose we shall do presently. I've come here to do it. In the meanwhile, old chap, will you mind telling me what you meant by saying that there is something wrong with Miss Graham? You remember that last time we dined together. As I was walking home and had entered the grounds, I heard a revolver shot, 
followed by the sound of a heavy body falling with a great splash into water. The whole jolly row came from the direction of the lake. I started off to see what could have caused it, when who should come along but Elsie Graham and Boris, you know, the big St. Bernard. When she said that she'd just come from the lake, I took it for granted that the splash had been caused by Boris, who had been treating himself to a bath, so I felt him. But no, he was dry as a bone. He hadn't been near the water. When I asked what the rumpus had been about, she wanted me to believe that I'd heard wrong, that there'd been no splash, no revolver fired. She actually cracked the dog-whip she had in her hand to make out that it was that I'd heard as if at close quarters I could mistake the crack of a whip for the crack of a gun. While we were talking, I don't know how it came about, but I touched her arm. Earl, it was soaking wet. I looked at my hand. It was covered with blood. Whoever had fired had hit her somewhere in the upper part of the arm, and she tried to make me believe that no one had fired at all. Didn't she offer an explanation? I didn't ask for one. I saw plainly enough that there was a secret and that she wanted to keep it. So I let her go into the house and I took Boris to his kennel. Then I went round the lake on my own account. On the bank, by the summer house, I found a revolver, a cheap Belgian thing, with one of its cartridges recently discharged and a briar wood pipe which was still warm. My dear man, there was only one way out of it. She had deliberately tried to make me believe the thing that was not. A man had been there, and I shouldn't be surprised if, in consequence, Boris had sent him flying into the water. That was the splash I'd heard. As I'd met her almost immediately afterwards, it looked as if she'd left him in the water. I didn't like the idea at all. So I got out the boat, and I did a bit of dragging. But as I found nothing, I could only suppose that if he had ever been in, he had got out and gone off, and left his revolver and his pipe behind him. What made you think it was Palgrave? I didn't know what to think. I don't now. That isn't all. When I went in, you can fancy it was latish, she came out of the library in her dressing gown, looking as if she'd seen twenty ghosts. She said she'd come down to fetch an envelope which she had in her hand, but when I got upstairs, Claire told me that the telephone bell had been ringing like blazes, mind you, at that time of night, and that she'd heard Elsie talking to someone through it. She'd heard Elsie promise to send somebody five hundred pounds, She'd been leaning over the landing in a pretty state of fluster. The library door was open. Elsie had been talking in a loudish tone of voice, apparently by particular request, so that she couldn't help hearing. And sure enough, after breakfast, Elsie asked Claire if she could tell her where she could get five hundred pounds by the following Friday. Claire said she couldn't. Elsie went out, and an hour or two afterwards came back with the information that she had got the money. Claire said she had an envelope in her hand which she believes was stuffed with banknotes. What's the inference you draw from all this? Who's Lionel Fitzherbert? Hanged if I know. Why do you ask? Because Claire believes that the money was sent to a Lionel Fitzherbert, and from that I've inferred that Lionel Fitzherbert is the name under which Palgrave's hiding. Since then Elsie's been a changed girl. Something's wrong. She's fading before our eyes. She neither eats nor drinks. Claire doesn't believe she sleeps. Earl, she's haunted. I don't know by what, but by something. I'm haunted in a sort of way myself, so that I recognize the thing when I see it in another, but her plight's much worse than mine, though mine is bad enough. Earl, do you know what I recommend you to do, with her? How can I do anything with her? 
when she won't speak or look at me, or, if she can help it, stay in the same street. I shouldn't ask her what she will or won't do. There's a touch of berserk in you. You're a lineal descendant of the gentleman who, when they wanted a thing, took it, whether it was a wife or any other little trifle, of which at the moment they stood in need. You want Elsie, my dear man, take her. What the something does the fellow mean? How on earth am I going to do it? You're not so dull as that. You wanted those papers old Culver had. You found out a way. You took em. You want Elsie? What's the sequitur? If you want her enough, you'll find out a way to take her. Kidnap her, if that's the word. Tuck her under your arm without asking if she likes the position. March her off to some secluded spot and explain to her, with a battle-axe if necessary, that she's got to be your wife. She'll say yes. Will she? You've your own ideas of wooing. They're not my ideas. They're the ideas which have ruled intercourse between the sexes since the world was in its cradle. It's doubtful if that intercourse has grown sweeter as they've waned. You love her. Love her? Earl laughed. That's not the word. I'd go through Hades for her. He was thinking of what Miss Scarlet had said the night before. You believe that she loves you? I know she does. Then that's all that matters. If a woman cares for a man with her nothing else counts, she thinks that it does, but it doesn't. The woman that is in her forgives him everything, if he handles her as a man should. He may pop her on a motor-car and whirl her to Timbuktu without asking her sanction, as she may suppose very much against her will. When he's got her there and has played the man, if she loves him, the only thing for which she'll care is that he whom she loves has played the man. Civilizations of veneer. The woman underneath is the woman of the Stone Age, who clung to the man who had hailed her to his hut and held her there against all comers. When Mr. Harmar ceased speaking, Rupert Earle was silent. He was thinking not so much of the singularity of this gentleman's views, in this day of woman's rights and wrongs, but of their similarity to Miss Scarlet's code of philosophy, as she had enunciated it to him at the gate in the wall on the preceding night. Chapter 25 Rupert Earle makes the acquaintance of Lionel Fitzherbert, Esquire. When Rupert Earle was returning home with Mr. Edwin Harmar's curious ideas of how a man should woo a maid filling all his mind, at the corner of Kite Street he came upon someone who brought him back with a bump from the somewhat romantic regions in which he had metaphorically been soaring. He had been struck, as he approached it on foot from Sloane Square, by the dinginess of that part of Wandsworth regarded as a residential quarter, especially as the habitation of one who was practically already a millionaire. Fancy asking Miss Graham to share his life in such a—he did not like to call it a slum, but in such an unlovely locality. Were he, acting on Mr. Harmar's hint, to bear her away with him in a motor-car, it should be to a very different scene to this— to a palace on a wooded slope overlooking a lake with mountains beyond amid surroundings of perfect beauty, and in the palace itself should be everything which the soul or a woman could desire. So circumstance it would go hard with him if he could not win her at least to resignation with her lot, so that one day she would whisper the confession that she was glad that he had made her, even by a return to the practices of the Stone Age, according to Edwin Harmar, his wife. From these, and similar Anaskar visions, he suddenly descended when accosted by a voice which was associated in his mind with something not at all agreeable. "'Excuse me, Mr. Earl, 
but I've just been venturing to make a little call at your rooms, Mr. Earl, and was so unfortunate as to find you out. It needed no second glance to tell him who the speaker was. It was the red-eyed individual who had addressed him last night at the music hall, and whom he had afterwards encountered in such mysterious fashion after quitting Walter Palgrave's hiding place. The sight of this stranger appeared to move him to what seemed unreasonable anger. Who the deuce are you? And what the devil do you mean by speaking to me? The man cast about him what seemed to be anxious glances. If you can spare me a few minutes of your valuable time, Mr. Earle, I've something to say to you which I'm sure you'll find most interesting. Come to my rooms. I'll make short work of you. There was something about the fashion of the invitation which, not unnaturally, the stranger did not seem to find altogether alluring. He drew back. There's a highly respectable coffee shop close by. If you've no objection, Mr. Earle, I'd much rather have a little talk with you in there. We shall be quite private, I do assure you. Why should I come with you to a coffee shop when my rooms are within a hundred yards? Well, Mr. Earle, I'll be quite frank with you. I'm a timid man, Mr. Earle, and if I was to come with you to your rooms, you might, as you put it yourself, make short work of me. If you was to try on anything like that, Mr. Earle, it might be the death of me. It really might. Earle laughed. He was conscious that the man's attitude was not unjustified. He had towards him such a feeling of aversion, though the reason why he could scarcely tell, that he was aware that it would not need much to induce him to subject him to unpleasant usage. In a place of public resort like a coffee-shop, the stranger might at least feel that he was running no appreciable risk of personal violence. They went together to the coffee-shop of which the stranger had spoken. It was of a humble sort, divided into old-fashioned boxes. In one of them they were as private as Mr. Earle had been with Miss Scarlet in the Italian restaurant the night before. Only the circumstances were so different. He had then felt as drawn towards the lady as he was now repelled by the man. So strong, indeed, was his feeling of repulsion that he was ashamed of being even momentarily in his company. He wanted the fellow to say what he had to say as quickly as he could, and be rid of him. He told him so plainly. I'm sure, Mr. Earle, you needn't stay a moment longer than you want, but I must begin with what I'll call a little bit of personal history. A sainted aunt, Mr. Earle, lately left me a snug legacy which I propose to devote to making a fresh start in life, in the only country in which it seems a man can make a fresh start, America. But just as I was starting I was robbed of it all, so that now I'm worse off than ever. What was the amount? Exactly five hundred pounds, Mr. Earle. A nice little sum for a man like me. For some reason Rupert Earle's thoughts flew to the sum which, according to her husband, Mrs. Harmar had said that Elsie Graham stood in need of. He observed the man with greater curiosity, as one in whom he might have a possible unsuspected interest. Why do you repose in me this uninvited confidence? The man's voice dropped to a thread-like whisper. As before, he looked anxiously about him. Well, Mr. Earle, it's like this. There's Mr. Walter Palgrave, sir. As you and I very well know, there are certain people who are looking for him, most anxiously they're looking. It might be worth five hundred pounds to whoever told them where to find him. Properly managed, it might be worth even more than that. Is that the idea? So last night you did dog my footsteps. No, Mr. Earle, I did not. 
You wrong me, Mr. Earl. You've no notion how you wrong me. I've known where Mr. W.P. was quite a time. I wouldn't give him away. No, not me. I'm not that sort. Not if I could help it. Only, you see, to a man in my unfortunate position, what a temptation it is. What I'm asking you to do is to put me out of temptation's reach. There are several ways of doing that. Are you suggesting that I should give you money not to sell an innocent man to the police? If someone was to give me five hundred pounds, Mr. Earl, I'd start for America by the next boat and never, never come back again. That would be a good thing for your country, I admit. It would be a still better if someone were to drop you overboard on the way. Ah, Mr. Earl, I've been given to understand that you were of a humorous turn of mind. You'd find me of a practical humor if I had my way with such carrion as you. You impudent blackguard, to dare to address me with such a proposition. How do you imagine I am concerned in what becomes of the gentleman you mention? Oh, Mr. Earl, now you do want to practice on my simplicity. You do, really. As if I didn't know you were all mixed up in the mess together, so that what puts him in the cart puts you. To say nothing of a certain young lady... You ought to think of her, Mr. Earle. You really did. To what young lady do you refer? Why, of course, Mr. Earle, to Miss Elsie Graham. We are not playing this game on even terms. You have me at an advantage. You know who I am, but I have not the dimmest notion what particular scrap of garbage you may chance to be. Who are you? So long as I know who you are, does it matter who I am? Does it, Mr. Earle? You're damnably at home with my name. What's yours? Shall we say, just for the sake of my having a name, shall we say, Lionel Fitzherbert Esquire? They were seated at a narrow table. Mr. Earle had his elbows on the board. Mr. Fitzherbert was sitting close up to sit on the other. Suddenly the taller man's hands going out caught the smaller one by the throat and began to treat him in a fashion which he could hardly have found agreeable. So it is you, you hound. I was beginning to think it was. A person in his shirt-sleeves, who was probably the proprietor, came rushing towards them. Here, stop that. What are you doing? Do you want to kill the man? Stop it, I say. Rupert Earl loosened his hold. I'll stop it, to oblige you, and for the present. After all, merely to kill the man would probably be to treat him better than he deserves. The coatless gentleman was giving his attention to Mr. Fitzherbert, who was leaning somewhat limply against the partition at his back. "'What have you done to him to make him treat you like that? Has he hurt you?' Mr. Fitzherbert's reply suggested that any damage he had received had been merely superficial. "'Not so much by a long chalk as I'll hurt him before I've done with him.' The landlord seemed to scent in the words an intention to continue the argument upon the spot. "'None of that now.' I won't have that sort of thing in my house. Out you go, both of you. You get off my premises. Mr. Fitzherbert, rising from his seat, shook himself somewhat as a dog might have done. His manner was decidedly acid. All right, Governor, don't you fret your gizzard. I'm going and only too glad to get the chance. As for you, Mr. Rupert Earl, you'll find me waiting for you outside. Mr. Fitzherbert passed into the street with an air which was probably as dignified as he knew how to make it. Mr. Earle, left behind, was aware that his dignity had suffered. 
The landlord, with the palms of his hands on his hips, was regarding him with an air of extreme disapprobation. "'After what's happened, you can't stay here any more than your friend. Out you go. And no more of your games outside my shop, because I won't have them. I'm surprised that a gentleman like you should have any truck with a chap like him.' I'm not at all surprised that you're surprised, because I'm surprised myself. Good day. Mr. Earle followed his friend, whom he found, as he had been assured would be the case, awaiting him in the street. Immediately he appeared, Mr. Fitzherbert greeted him in tones which were distinctly above a whisper. If that bloke hadn't interfered, I'd have put a bullet in you in another half-second. I'm not afraid of you and never shall be. Don't you make any mistake, as you'll soon learn. I owe your blank girl one and i owe you one and i'll pay the two of you and if there's any one better at paying those kind of debts he's hard to find i'll put the police on mr walter palgrave and on you and on your blank girl as well i'll quad the lot of you don't you touch me but mr earl did touch him he caught him off the ground as if he had been a small terrier Gripping the fellow's right hand, which he had thrust into his jacket pocket and twisting a revolver from it, Earl threw him from him to reach the pavement as best he might. It is a revolver. I wondered. Cheap Belgian. Own brother, I dare bet, to the one which was found on the bank of the lake at Timberham. So it was you who fired at Miss Graham. I've half a mind to give you into charge for attempted murder. Oh, don't stop at half a mind. Go the whole hog. Give me into charge. There's a copper at the bottom of the hill. I'll call him, and you give me into charge. You'll have to come with me to the station, and I lay that when I've told my tale, I'll be the only one to leave it. You'll never leave it again. And before very long, you'll have your best girl and your boozing pal to keep you company. Shall I call the copper, or will you? Apparently, Rupert Earle was not anxious that either should call him. Mr. Fitzherbert's strident tones and singular manner were attracting attention. Stragglers were gathering. The proprietor of the coffee-shop was standing at his open door. Presently there might be something of the nature of a street-row in which Mr. Earle's dignity might suffer more than it had done already. One inferred that he deemed this an occasion on which, taking all the circumstances into consideration, discretion might be the better part of valor. Slipping Mr. Fitzherbert's weapon into his own jacket pocket, he walked calmly off with it. Its owner, instead of attempting to regain possession of his property, contented himself with shouting after him, with a sudden resort to the vernacular. "'So long, my cocky bloke. How about giving me into charge? That's the time of day, is it? Think it's better to sling your blooming hook? And right you are, because you won't be able to do it long, and so I tell you straight.' "'Send my love to your best girl, and tell her from me that I haven't gone to America, that I've blown in all the pieces, and that I'll be even with her inside of four-and-twenty hours. And you may give the same tip to Mr. W.P. He won't be able to get away from me however much he tries. I'll have all the lot of you dancing on nothing.' They were not agreeable words for Mr. Earle to have ringing in his ears as he walked home. Possibly he was borne up by the consciousness that it was the speaker's intention that this should not suffer for want of a little colouring. He allowed no signs of annoyance to escape him, but strolled quietly along, with his head a little in the air, the fingers of his right hand trifling with the cheap Belgian revolver which was in his jacket pocket. When he reached his lodging he found two telegrams awaiting him. 
This was the first he opened. Have decided to take up option without further delay. Can you call at my office this afternoon to complete? Say what time I may expect you. Silas P. Shaddock. A reply-paid form was enclosed. The telegram meant that half a million sterling would be transferred to his account that afternoon. And he had received a hundred thousand pounds only yesterday. It seemed incredible, yet it was true. And in his secret heart he had known all along that if he could only last it would be true. That he would change the world, in all its multitudinous, multifarious relations, much more effectually than it had been changed by the introduction of steam that the hour would strike when he could have millions for the asking. As Edwin Harmer had put it, his Arabian night's dreams had become waking realities. Was ever there a more fortunate man? This was the second telegram he opened. I've just discovered that Elsie's going to be married the day after tomorrow to Reverend Peter Menius. Never was more amazed in my life. What does it mean? Can't you stop it? Claire Harmar End of chapters 24 and 25